This episode is sponsored by Natural Mat, an organic bed and mattress company based on the banks of the River X in Devon. Natural Mat controls the whole process of making, from collecting organic wool to sending out the finished product in its own vans. You can visit a Natural Mat showroom in the Cotswolds, Chiswick or Devon, or log on to naturalmat.co.uk. I just really knew my materials, so I was able to play around with my materials through my experience. And I think, you know, when you get onto something that, that wasn't there before, you tend to go through, you know, sort of an introduction which may or may not work in your favour. Welcome to House Guest with me, Carol Annett, Interiors Editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. Here I chat to those clever creatives behind the houses, hotels and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. Guests include interior designers and architects, as well as celebrities dipping their toe into the world of decorating. Stephen Webster is a London-based contemporary jewellery brand, renowned for its powerful aesthetic and instantly recognisable collections. At the heart of Stephen Webster is respect for traditional British craftsmanship, and I'm absolutely delighted to say that Stephen Webster is my house guest today. It's lovely to meet you, Stephen. And lovely to meet you. Now, I have been a huge fan since you kind of hit the scene. Was it 30 years ago, or are we talking longer? I'll, I'll keep it at 30. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now you're based in Grafton Street. In I London. am. That's where I'm at right now. With the yeah, I say the biggest building site behind me in the West End, apparently, <laughs> and it, which will result in the most expensive retail in the West End. So yeah, we're looking forward to that. Fantastic. You started by apprenticing at sixteen in the you know the only place to apprentice for jewelry, Hatton Garden. That's right, yeah, which was a lot longer than 30 years ago. That was like 47 years ago, yeah. So tell me a bit about what it was that caught you, you know, what was it about jewellery that um, kind of spoke to you? I went to my careers teacher at sort of 15 for some advice and he advised me to consider a modern apprenticeship at Chatham Dockyard, which just didn't seem like, the kind of modern apprenticeship I was going to entertain. And, and so I, I just took it on myself to explore what was possibly out there. And and we, we had an art school that wasn't, you know, that wasn't so far away. So I went there and in my mind, I thought I would apply for a fashion design course because I really liked fashion and I could draw. And anyway, when I got there, I realised that, you know, that wasn't something I'd thought through in the slightest, but but I did discover a thing called jewellery that you could make a living out of. And, and that I'd never, ever considered that. I was, you know, like I said, I was 15. And, and I think something about the workshops, you know, they were noisy and they had sort of very distinct smells and there was flames and people appeared to be working very hard to make treasure. And and I think that just stayed with me. and And so... I applied to to do a jewellery course, which I got onto, and and that led me into my apprenticeship, which was a brilliant way to enter a very craft-driven industry, was, you know, a very sort of hands-on approach. Now, your career, you've always been very associated with fashion, but 
am I right in thinking it was really the Crystal Hayes collection which kind of launched you into the big time? Is that fair to say when it kind of that that sort of Tom Ford era and then it was picked up by Madonna? Yeah, I think by the time I was sort of toying with this sort of like this kind of concept of of a sort of a, an extreme doublet, if we call it that, which 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 was Crystal Hayes. I just really knew my materials. So I was able to play around with my materials um, through my experience, you know, and and um, and I think, you know, when you get onto something that, that wasn't there before, you tend to go through, you know, sort of an introduction which may or may not work in your favour. And and I, I think my, my first responses from the industry, because that's where I was, selling my work was two shops was lukewarm at the best and and I think you know fair enough it, it wasn't something that was was sort of in, in their mind considered to be fine jewelry even though everything was beautifully made the metal was 18 karat gold I used diamonds but the the hero was this big piece of quartz faceted quartz that had an underlay of color which which provided this sort of mystery if you like and um and that was that was the bit that that really was the focus of crystal Hayes. and and then you know fortunately for me i had an opportunity to present my work through through default if you like to madonna and she loved it and and i think that was the thing that because she would wear the crystal Hayes rings that she had on her index finger which was already sort of not where most people was wear, were wearing their rings. And, and it was a big cocktail ring, so it was very noticeable. And I think, you know, before we think of a modern-day influencer, someone like Madonna in her heyday was, was influencer enough. Yeah. And very, very quickly, magazines got onto to this new idea of what a cocktail ring was could look like and and then they found me and then yes that sort of catapulted me into somewhat into a a jewelry limelight yeah yeah and that must have been incredibly exciting and it kind and you're you know you haven't stopped from there really yeah it was exciting I think it was exciting because there was an element of no one really knew what a jewellery designer might look like or how they would be. It was still a bit of a mystery because, you know, yes, there was Cartier, there was Bulgari, but they were, they didn't have these sort of personalities. You mentioned Tom Ford. You know, there was Alexander McQueen, there was Tom Ford. There was all the fashion designers. Everybody knew what they looked like. And there was starting with, you know, Milana Blahnik, um, you know, Christian Labutan, people knew what shoe designers looked like, Jimmy Choo, but they didn't know what jewellers looked like. So this all kind of came at a time when I felt like I got the extra boost because people were, <laughs> were interested to find out what did a jewellery designer look like. I mean, and, I, and I, you know, I, I'm not talking here like I was the only one, but you can kind of imagine it was the last bit left of, of luxury that, had an anonymity about it. It, it. People didn't know much about it, you know. Yeah. Um, now, we must talk about Dale Vince and the incredible Sky Diamond, because you are the first brand collaboration 
that Sky Diamond has done. And I know that your heart is very much with a sort of sustainability ethos. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you met Dale and what it's all about. Yeah, Dale it was trying to make an appointment with me about, it was about eight years ago. And, and I think the information I was giving was that, the, that he was a diamond dealer. And to be <laughs> honest, I really wasn't that interested, but he was very persistent. And, and when, when he finally got his appointment, I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't look like any diamond dealer I've ever met before. And he showed me some brown crystals and um, I tested them and they tested as 100% diamond. I assumed that they were lab-grown diamonds because, you know, the way that the conversation had gone and stuff. And, and, and then he starts to explain to me that he's got this sort of dream, if you like, a vision that, that he's going to realise. And it's about extracting the carbon that, that basically we put in the air and and with with modern equipment which exists in a laboratory type setting you can you know grow a diamond which is you know chemically and identical to a mined diamond and and i think that in itself the the, the process of the of the laboratory grown diamond wasn't as exciting to me as the prospect of this being created from carbon that we put in the air. And then, you know, the more I found out about Dale, which was very quickly at our meeting, the more I realized that this, you know, his reasons for wanting to do this felt like something that was a future rather than just, you know, look, we've got lab diamonds now. How about lab diamonds? Uh, because to be honest, even with just the lab diamonds, there's there's quite a lot of opaqueness that can surround that. Whereas Dale was telling me something that was the exact opposite. So, you know, over the years, because it was eight years, I became very familiar with uh, the development of it. The, um, you know, we, we designed the collections and we changed them a bit. We, you know, as things sort of developed, we kind of worked together on what the jewellery was going to look like, because obviously... He's not a jeweler. I'm the jeweler, and um, he's he's the the visionary, if you like, with the um, with the development of creating this sky diamond, and you know, literally through COVID, things just kept getting delayed and he delayed mainly about getting parts for the equipment, and then finally, you know, COVID's over and we we had we had sky diamonds, and during this period, the technology. Um, moved but the main thing was sort of extracting the carbon, turning it into the diamonds that we wanted to make and um, you know so they were commercially attractive because the first ones he showed me which were brown um, and they weren't cut, they were just crystals I actually really liked because I said wow, this looks like it's full of the, the carbon and the crap we put in the air you know it looks like it's all in this diamond and and there's, there's definitely an argument for that but I think his his idea was if, if you want to take on the diamond industry even in this very modern way it's got to you've got to equate the end product to what people are used to which which of course is absolutely right so we got there in the end with you know basically you just keep you, you just keep adjusting the recipe until you get a white stone until in the end you, because there's 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 an element in there 
always of I want to say sort of chance because you you could keep you could get your recipe right and just keep doing exactly the same thing and the diamonds that you turn out will all be a bit different and this is not about shapes this is about you know their quality their clarities their colors but on the whole now everything is a white diamond everything cuts up exactly how we want it to and they're amazing you know they are the first carbon negative diamonds in the world the air that goes into the process is is dirtier than when it exits after the process is complete so you know there there is there are very few industries like that and uh, but the sky diamond process is a certified carbon negative process so i love that and i love being the first person to to launch the products as jewelry and tell me about your um entry into homewares you know you've done some beautiful knife sets and that incredible silver owl that you did for a client with us which is a sort of cocktail cabinet all in one when did you decide to start uh, moving into into the home it's a funny thing, really, because when I was going back to 1976 and I was at art school, because we were given the options, really, to pursue any sort of avenue within the, the, the jewellery and silversmithing sort of arena. And I, I thought, I want to be a silversmith. I love this. I love hammering big pieces of metal and making, you know, things of a scale. And my tutor at the time, who, who was quite rightly, said, look, you're going to be a really good craftsman, be a jeweler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, partly because at that time, if you went into Hatton Garden, yeah, you would have seen silversmithing workshops. I mean, I worked above one. It was a really noisy place because all they do is hammer metal all day. But there was probably about 70 silversmiths. It was called CJ Vanders. And they made teapots like there was no tomorrow. They all went to the American market for those sort of silver British, you know, tea sets. And But it was a dying trade. I didn't know, but it was on the decline and it had been for some years. So I, I sort of never pursued it, but I always loved it. And then some years later, and I won't say some years, because it was probably 20, 20 years later, <laughs> but still some time ago, I thought there, there was an exhibition of cutlery through the ages but, but ending with modern cutlery at the Goldsmiths Hall in, in the city. And I thought, wow, I'd love to make a set of cutlery. So I did some designs and I got accepted to make a set of cutlery, just a place setting. So like eight pieces of cutlery for this exhibition. And, and I enjoyed it so much because it wasn't jewellery, but yeah. I could apply all my sort of craft techniques to it in in a different way. I was making forks and spoons and knives. And and so I thought I'll make a whole set of cutlery. Well, making a whole set of cutlery is fine, but you got a lot of pieces. And I worked with one of the last handmade cutlers that was left in Hatton Garden. And I'm talking about 1995 or six when I did this. And um, we made a fabulous set of cutlery and I sold it to the owner of the Boston Celtics in America. And it really was fabulous. Each piece was set with the birthstones of the family in. So each place setting, they had their own birthstones in the handles of, of the knives and forks. And it, it really, you, know, you talk about heirlooms. This was a family heirloom and magnificent thing. 
very expensive and very heavy. But it kind of, I thought, you know what, we did that pretty well. And then I parked it for a while. And then a, 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 a Scottish person asked me if he could make, if I could make him the most rock and roll ski and do for his wedding. And the ski and do, for those who don't know, is the, the sort of decorative dagger that goes with a kilt and the socks and, you know, oh, yeah. traditional yeah, yeah. bottom. They always have one. I've kind of applied all my rock and roll aesthetic to it. And it, it certainly was rock and roll. And so we did that. And, and I called it the beast because it felt like a beast. And that led me to think about making carving knives called the beasts. And, and I, so I, I made bronze handled carving knives, a set of all the animals, depicting all the animals that we eat. And then I made one courgette for vegetarians, <laughs> but they were all bronze and, and they looked fabulous. They looked magnificent in this knife stands and it really took off and and what what spun out of it is a whole world of homeware which which to be honest is it's more about barware with the exception of my carving knives and my cheese boards and my cutlery because i can i can really get involved in the home bar Great stuff. And Stephen, what have you got coming up um, this summer? Are you launching something this summer? Yeah, back in my, my early days before Crystal Hayes, I used to make a lot of pin brooches because I felt like you could be really creative with a brooch. You know, it was like a storytelling piece. It, it, it didn't have to conform in the same way as, let's say, other pieces of jewellery did. And um, when I say did, it's because to be quite honest now, you can make any piece of jewellery be anything you want it to be. But we're talking about in the early 80s, and it wasn't quite that way. But brooches felt like they always were a bit like storytelling. And so I used to use a lot of the techniques I love, like stone carving, enameling, you know, lots of colour. You know, they always sold and I love to do it. And then you sort of move on and, you know, we, we didn't make brooches for a while. But the last few years, I started to just introduce the odd brooch now and again. And I've got one in the Museum of Natural History in, in New York, which is um, a pair of Japanese fighting fish. And um, it's made of titanium, so it's super light, which is, of course, a massive advantage with something like a brooch because then you can wear it on thinner fabrics etc and you can give it some real volume so this piece these japanese fighting fish i started to get clients wanting versions of it and so i kind of did it in a series and you know different colors etc but i love this symmetry of these two fish biting and so this year i'm launching a series of pins it's called sworn enemies and and it's all animals that can't be in the same room together, like fighting fish. A Japanese fighting fish, if you put two in a tank, one will come out the winner, the other one will be dead. And, and to be honest, it's really surprising when you research this, of what kind of animals can't be together. I'm going to only give you one example because I don't want to spoil my whole sworn enemies, but hummingbirds, <laughs> right? Everyone thinks a little hummingbirds. Hummingbirds will 
will fight to the death. And so I've created all these pins called sworn enemies that are all the creatures that that can't be in the same room together. We makes you smile when you think about it. So, Brilliant. so that's um that's coming out. Um, along with quite a lot more actually, because I've got because we got the homeware as well. I I've got to keep everything exciting. So I've always, I've always done men's jewelry, and and I feel that men's jewelry I've stuck with it for years and and you know years ago i only i only sold men's jewelry to literally to to rock stars because men were so interested and and now you know you fast forward and the men's sector is probably the fastest growing sector and so we've we've sort of gone back into it more uh, just more um robustly if you like and 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 that's really exciting for me because you know you can't see it's a podcast, but I wear quite a lot of jewelry, and I love it when men discover that they can wear jewelry, and I, and it it trust me mostly it's a process of discovery because that it doesn't quite come as naturally to most guys as it does to women, but then then you've got you sort of um you know gender neutral jewelry jewelry that gets bought by men and women and that category didn't even exist it's, you know that's an exciting new area to go to so it's i feel like we're going through another jewelry renaissance which um is always exciting if you're on the creative side of that absolutely well it's absolutely brilliant to meet you and um thank you so much for your time um and so if we come to grafton street will we be able to see the sworn enemies and um that's your main showroom in the UK. No, no. My studio is on Grafton Street. My showroom is 130 Mount Street. Oh, I do. So uh, that's, where that's where you'll see everything we make. Here, we're making it. Okay. And, uh, and need people, to head to Mount Street. Are very, people are very welcome, but I have to do a studio tour by appointment because you can imagine it, it gets a bit disruptive. But, the, but Mount Street's open all the time. All right. Shop hours. Yeah. Yeah. all right well all thank right. you very very well, much indeed you. it's really good to meet you thanks for your time thank you very much sustainability has been at the heart of natural mat since day one this year they became the first bed and mattress company in the uk to gain b Corp status they also hold the queen's award for sustainability using only certified organic materials natural mats mattresses are better for you and the planet visit naturalmat.co.uk Thank you for joining me today. You can hear more House Guest on British Airways in-flight entertainment in the audio section, along with our sister podcast, Breakout Culture, with Lord Ed Vasey and Charlotte Metcalf. You can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett.